As always is the case, I do consider it to be an honor to speak concerning the Word of God, and my aim is this. My aim is that you will be able to leave edified and encouraged and maybe even instructed by God's Word today. As you can see on the screen, the title of our lesson is Having the Mind of Christ. What does that mean? As an introductory passage, our mind is directed to Philippians chapter 2 and beginning there in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In this passage, Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ. But Paul would further say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. He said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The King James says, follow me even as I follow Christ. The New King James says, imitate and you know, really, we understand about imitating. I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy, I had a sports figure that was my hero. And his name was Roger Staubach. And we lived in this little house in Oxnard at 4000 San Simeon Street. And it had a little tiny little backyard. But to me as a little boy, it was a huge football field. And I would wear a jersey and I'd be back there by myself. I would be Roger Staubach. I would be that guy. I would try to imitate my hero. And I think that's what we do when we're kids, especially boys, when you talk about sports heroes. So we understand the concept of imitating, being a replica of, and so forth. But Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, why is that? Because Jesus Christ is our perfect example. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, Peter said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So, going back to our text then, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, imitate Christ. Philippians 2 and 5, have the mind of Christ. And in our passage, Paul's going to tell us exactly how to do that. How do you have the mind of Christ? Well, I'll tell you this. I can't read the Lord's mind. I don't know what the Lord thinks that goes beyond what he said or goes beyond what he did. So the only way that I can have the mind of Christ is to look at his example and imitate that example. That's the only way that I can do that. The first way that we have to do that, though, if we're going to have the mind of Christ, we must have a mind of sacrifice. You know, I know that that's not a very popular word. Sacrifice. Giving of yourself. But in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7... Paul said, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he sacrificed the blessings of heaven. Notice this passage here. 
And he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, in the very beginning, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was there with God. In fact, even in the creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, let us make man in our image. That included Jesus Christ. So he was in the form of God. He was there with God and he was God and is too today. God the Son. Now, the Bible says he did not consider it robbery. What does robbery mean? Now, you think about robbery, I think about somebody breaking into someone's house and stealing. But that word doesn't mean that. The word robbery means this. It means to hold on to something dear. It means to cherish. So what it's saying is this. Our Lord sacrificed to the point that what? He didn't hold on to the idea that he was in the form of God. He didn't hold on and grasp that as something that was so valuable he wasn't willing to let go. But he emptied himself. He became of no reputation. And he took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And as a result, what do we have? In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. A couple of things about this amazing passage. First of all, the word high priest. Now, that is in reference looking back to the things that were done under the law of Moses. They had a high priest. A high priest had to be sympathetic to the needs of the people. Now, the high priest of old under the old law was a picture of Jesus. He is our high priest. The common priest that worked in the holy place, in the holy place of the old, was a picture of the church. And the priest is simply a picture of us, Christians. So a high priest had to be sympathetic to the needs of the people. What do we have now? We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who is in heaven, and he understands. Have you ever said or heard somebody say, nobody can possibly understand what I'm going through? I have this struggle, and nobody can possibly know. There is one that knows. And there's one that knows because why? He emptied himself and sacrificed the joys of heaven to be the Lamb of God and be our high priest. How does he know? Because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The sacrifice, though, went beyond heaven. The Bible says he was made a little lower than the angels. Now, at no time are the angels greater than Jesus. And when the Bible says that Jesus was for a time and a purpose a little lower than the angels, it simply means that he was made to be a little lower than the angels for one reason, and that is so that he could die. Angels can't die. Angels are in heaven. They're not mortal. They're not like us. They can't die. Jesus, for a, per, a point in time, came to this world for about 33 years or so and became a little lower than the angels so that he could die for our sins. Sacrifice number one, leaving heaven. Sacrifice number two, after a life that was in view of his death, died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the world. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Make no mistake about it. Nobody took the Lord's life. His life he freely gave. You've heard me preach this in the past. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful passage and a beautiful concept. When Jesus was hanging on the cross... And finally, he said, knowing all things needed to be fulfilled, there was one more scripture, and it was, I thirst. He said, I thirst, because one more thing had to happen, totally in control. And they dipped that sponge, which was attached to hyssop in vinegar, and put it to his lips, and he would not drink. Because there was one more passage, one more prophecy that had to be fulfilled, and he was totally in control. When that happened, though, do you know what he said? He said, Father, it is finished. It is accomplished. I have done it. Your plan, it's over. And then he says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Jesus said, basically, it's now time. I'll die. What a beautiful passage. And then it says, and then he bowed his head. And that simply means it's the posture of someone that pillows their head willfully. That's not the victim. That's the victor. And he gave his life for the sins of the world, for your sins today, and for me. He laid it down. No one took it from him. So, if we're going to have the mind of Christ, we also have to have a mind of sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, beginning there in verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How are we going to do that? First of all, I want to say this. When you sacrifice your life, when you present your bodies a living sacrifice, when you are holy and live a life that is acceptable to God, you know what it is? It's your reasonable service. I missed a slide. It is your reasonable service. You sacrifice everything. It's your reasonable service. Not extra credit. We've got to do that. It is our reasonable service. And to do that, we have to sacrifice the following. Let's talk about sacrifice for just a minute. The number one thing you could ever sacrifice is yourself. It's kind of like this. If somebody gives you a gift, they went down to the store and they bought you a gift, it might be really nice. You might think, well, that's really good. But if somebody does something more than that with an act of service, they give of themselves, isn't it much more meaningful? It means so much more when people give of themselves. If I'm going to have the mind of sacrifice, i got to have a mind of sacrificing myself. And the number one thing you can do in sacrificing yourself is sacrificing your time. You know what's amazing about time? We're told that we are to redeem the time. And God has given us time. It's for our benefit, by the way. God doesn't need time. Nothing matters to God regarding time. All that matters is time has been given to us. 
Sometimes we talk about serving God. You know, I really want to do more. I just don't have time. I'd like to do some more things for the cause of Christ. I just don't have time. Maybe someday when I retire, I'll have more time. And sometimes we, we get it in our minds. We just don't have time. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. God has given us 168 hours in a week. And we have the flexibility to decide what we're going to do with those 168 hours. Well, first of all, there are things that are obligations. I get that. There are things that are responsibilities, and there are things we have to do. Like, for example, we have to work. The Bible says that a man that does not provide for his own, especially of his own house, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. I have to provide for my own. We get that. The average person works 40 hours a week. I'm talking about a full-time employed person. Works about 40 hours a week. But let's just say this. Whether it's with a commute or whether you have a boss that works you longer, whether you're self-employed, let's just say this. You work 50 hours a week. You got 118 left. Oh, but there's something else I got. I got to sleep. I mean, everybody's got to sleep. Some people sleep a couple hours. I know somebody that's not here today that sleeps about an hour and a half. Some people sleep about six. Um, some people need eight. The average person is supposed to need eight. In fact, studies say that it's good for you to sleep eight. You got 62 left. What else? Well, I got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. Let's just say this. Let's say every time you ate, you took, a, you took one hour. You took an hour break just to eat. Even if you did that, that's 21 hours in a week. You got 41 left. Oh, well, you know, I, I got to have some recreation. Because all work and no play makes Frank a dull boy. Yeah, got to have a little recreation. All right, let's do that. How about 14 hours a week? that all right? 14? 14 hours of recreation. So Frank's not a dull boy. You got 27 left. 27 hours left. What else? Well, I got chores to do. I got chores to do. Maybe an hour a day. Seven hours a week. You got 20 left. 20 left. Well, you know, preacher, I need some downtime. I need some relaxation time. I need some study time. I need to read. Okay, let's do that. How about an hour a day? Seven hours. You've got 13 left. And that's 13 to do with whatever you choose. Anything. And by the way, all of these are flexible. These are just an idea, throwing them out there. And even if these things are extreme, you still have 13 hours left. Let me ask you something. What do you do with the 13 left? 168 hours in the week. And folks, we can't even give him that. We can't even sacrifice three and a half. We meet on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. We meet on Sunday night for an hour. We meet on Wednesday night for another hour. It's three and a half. Three and a half. You had 168. We can do better than that. Now, I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm not talking about some of the older folks that do all they can to be here on Sunday morning and would be here if they could, all the services. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about people that make choices. Are you making choices or are those extenuating circumstances beyond your control? I'm just asking. It's for you to, ask, it's for you to answer within yourself. 
168 hours of the week. Can't we sacrifice, if we're physically able, three and a half? And at least be at the services. One of the things we can do to sacrifice, sacrifice our time. The Lord's given us that for us to choose. How will you spend your time? How much sacrifice do you give to the Lord? Here's another one, though. Another way to sacrifice is by giving of your money. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am talking about sacrificial giving, okay? I'm talking about sacrificial giving. And the greatest example, by the way, in all the Bible of sacrificial giving was what Jesus said about that little widow that gave two mites. I want to talk about that for just a minute. And why was her giving so much greater? In Mark chapter 12, in verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money in the treasury. And many were rich, put in much. You know, sometimes we measure the gift based on the amount. And Jesus, though, is sitting there that day, and he looks out, and he sees all these rich people. And they're putting in a great amount. In fact, this was at the time of the Passover, and thousands of people, thousands of people would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus is viewing all of this, and he sees all these rich people show up, and this great crowd of people, and you can just imagine this great, tremendous crowd of folks. And the rich people are putting in huge gifts. I read the scholar one time that said that oftentimes what they would do, they'd make a huge show of it too. In fact, they'd even have a trumpeteer that often followed them and blast the trumpet when they put in their money. Look what I did. Maybe that's why the Lord, as I paraphrase, said, don't blow your horn when you do your giving. Just give. And then all of a sudden, though, there was somebody else. There was somebody else that caught the Lord's eye. It was a little widow, and she came and threw in two mites. You know, Mark's account says, shows that she was all alone. And I want you to picture this if you can. Maybe she was one of the victims, too. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus condemned those that would rob women's or rob widows' houses. Maybe it was her, maybe she was one, too, that he was referring to. But in the midst of all of this and all this great giving, he spots a little widow. And he says something about her. One little widow came, and she captures the Lord's eye, and she threw in two mites, which make a quadrants, and the King James says, a farthing. Now, what in the world is a mite? A mite is from the word lepta, and it's the smallest of all copper Greek coins. And those that are familiar with Roman coinage, for example, understand that two mites, and by the way, it'll make sense at the end, Two mites is a quadrants. A quadrants is a quarter of a Roman Assyrius. Okay? Doesn't mean anything to us yet. It will. An Assyrius is one sixteenth of a denarius. Okay? A denarius was the average daily wage. In fact, in the New Testament, somebody worked all day, they got a denarius. They got one denarius, one denarii. For one day's wages. In today's monetary breakdown or exchange, it would be this. A denarius today would be about 16 to 18 cents. Okay? So, an Assyrius is worth about a penny. Therefore, quadrants 
is about a quarter of a penny. This precious little widow was the example the Lord chose. And she gave a quarter of a penny. She didn't have anything. You know what's amazing to me? The heart of people that sometimes don't have much at all, but they give all they can. Sometimes we think about, well, if, if I had a lot more money, I could give more. I got this from Terry the other day. He looked up a statistic. And if you were planning on using this in the future, sorry about that. But he looked up a statistic. And people in times of depression gave more then, percentage-wise, than they do now. We have all kinds of luxury around here. Absolutely. You got heated seats, you got all this stuff in your cars, all, all kind of AC going. We got all this luxury. And yet we give in a percentage wise less than people that gave when they were truly poverty stricken. This little widow gave a quarter of a cent. And to all those that gave a tremendous amount, it was literally nothing. And yet the Lord had something to say. In verse 43, by the way, it would have looked like that. So one scholar says this would have been two mites. This would have been a quadrants. That's all she had. That's all she threw in. Now, Mark 12, 43. This is what Jesus said about that. So he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who had given to the treasury. Interestingly, Gould says that the meaning of this is that the woman cast into the treasury more than all the others combined. She gave more than all those who had given combined. And why? They put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had of her whole livelihood. What makes her gift so precious in the Lord's eyes? What makes her gift so precious is they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. And isn't that kind of how we do? Sometimes we do that. And you know, sometimes we don't mean to. We just fall into this trap. I got all these bills. I got all this stuff. All these obligations. When I, when I, when I take care of all of that, if I have any left over, I'll just give the Lord a little bit of that. You ever stop to consider that it's all the Lord's anyway. That he has provided. That he has blessed us. It's all his anyway. And when we give, we're just giving back a part of what he has blessed us with. It's all his. We have an opportunity to do something with it. It's our choice. But how much? Do we give just to give because we have to? Or do we give because we're willing to make the sacrifice that we should make? It's not the amount of the gift that earns the Lord's approval. But it's the spirit of the giver and the sacrifice that's involved. J.W. McGarvey said this. He said, we are disposed to measure the value of actions quantitatively rather than qualitatively. Moreover, we are better judges of actions than motives. And can see the outward conduct much clearer than inward character. But God's word constantly teaches that he looks inward. In the case of the value of this woman's gift, it was measured by quality and not by quantity. In quantity, it was two mites. 
in quality, it was the gift of all she had. McMillan said this, and you remember when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven, right? What did he mean? McMillan says this, it's just more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven simply because of the virtual impossibility of making any real sacrifice and thereby coming to know the devotion of that kind of discipleship. Large amounts out of abundance simply cannot be compared with the total gift of one's poverty. One more, Cranfield said this, the gifts of the rich, though large, were easy gifts. The widow's gift, though tiny, meant a real surrender to herself to God and trust in him. And therefore, an honoring of God as God, as the one to whom we belong completely and who is able to care for us. It's about sacrifice. But also, not only do we have a mind of sacrifice by sacrificing our time and our giving, but here's another one. Maybe you've not thought of this. We show and we sacrifice when we exercise our liberties. Are you willing to sacrifice when you're exercising your liberties? What in the world are liberties? I'll tell you what liberties aren't. And this is kind of what people think liberties are. Oh, liberties are the things I get to do. And you can't say anything because I'm allowed to choose to do that. And whether you like it or not, I'm allowed. Is that what Paul meant in Romans 14? Is that what Paul's talking about? 1 Corinthians 8? Is that what he's talking about? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about Romans 14. What really is the principle of liberties? Let me just say this. Here is a liberty. Get this, please. Where God's word does not legislate, the believer is free to exercise choice. In other words, it's something that's not wrong. And if God's word did not legislate and it's not wrong, then the believer, the Christian, is free to exercise his or her choice regarding that, to exercise his or her liberties. However, Christian liberty should always aim at the things that do, that should never aim at the things that do harm to another Christian and harm them spiritually in their spiritual life. It has to be things that are of non-essentials and it has to be things where it's not wrong and it has to be things where the word of God does not legislate. All right, quickly now, Romans 14. Two examples he gives, the kind of food you eat and various days you recognize. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Receive one who is weak. And by the way, weak in the faith does not mean weak Christian. Get that. It doesn't mean he's just a weak Christian. No, it's weak concerning his conscience. So, receive one who has weak in his conscience. And he's going to talk about what that's connected to. But not to disputes over doubtful things. Here it is. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. It's not talking about a weak Christian. It's talking about weak concerning your conscience. If somebody thinks it's wrong to eat meat and they have a conscience against that, they can choose to not eat meat. Okay? Some say they just eat vegetables. But let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, 
And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. All right. That's concerning food. If you have a problem with a certain kind of food, okay, I have the liberty to eat that food if I want. And some people are on this diet. Some people are on the seafood diet. You see food and you eat it. Everything. Right? It doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. If somebody's a vegetarian, fine, be a vegetarian. If somebody's a vegetarian because they had a conscience against eating meat, fine. Don't eat your meat in their face. Don't do that. There's so much more. Now, what about days? One person esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I know that the first thing that pops in your head is, well, we're talking about Jewish Christians that still had a conscience against letting the Sabbath go. Because, by the way, in Christianity, we don't recognize the Sabbath. We have a new day. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. So we don't have the Sabbath under the law of Christ. We know that. So people look at this verse and they say, well, that's what it is. It's talking about the Sabbath. But remember this, please. He's not just writing to Jewish Christians or about Jewish Christians. He's writing to Jew and Gentile Christians alike. And both Jew and Gentile Christians both had various aspects in their mind about eating. And both had various thoughts in their mind about various days. So the one that's called weak, that's the one that has a problem with his conscience regarding that matter. One that's strong is one that doesn't have a conscience against that. And by the way, it's okay because it doesn't matter. It is a liberty. What else? He continues in verse 6. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, the day does not he observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Verses 15 and 14. 14 and 15. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, get this, you are no longer walking in love. I'm going to read that again. If your brother is grieved because of what you do with your liberty, you are no longer walking in love. See, so it's not, I get to do it and you can't tell me I can't. It doesn't mean that at all, does it? In fact, look at verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or for the sake of your liberty. Don't destroy the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Interesting passage here. Notice verse 22 as a continuation of this. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. And by the way, this is talking about your conscience. Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. 
Don't you see? If it's something that God did not legislate in his word, then your conscience has to kick in to determine whether you're going to exercise that liberty or not. If you have a conscience against it, don't do it because something could be not wrong in itself, but violate your conscience so you're not doing it as a faith and it becomes sin to you because you go against your conscience. That's what Paul said right there. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So let's sum it up by saying this. Here's the attitude we have to have when it comes to liberties. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now let me give you the practical way that that happens. If I eat meat and Terry has a conscience against it, and I willingly and willfully eat that in front of Terry. I am causing him, or I fear that I'm doing so, I'm causing a stumbling block or an occasion to fall before Terry. Why? It violates his conscience. If Terry then eats the meat, he offends or sins. Therefore, I shouldn't do that. You know what Paul said? doesn't matter about meat. Eat your meat in private. But I'll tell you this. If it would cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat it again. Is that your mindset? Because to have the mind of Christ is to have the mind of sacrifice. To have the mind of sacrifice is to understand you have to sacrifice when it comes to exercising your liberties. We've noticed three ways that we exercise or we are, we sacrifice ourselves. We do so by our time, our money, and also exercising of liberties. This flows right in this though. Notice though, there's a condition here. To have the mind of sacrifice, we have to have the mind of humility. If you don't have the mind of humility, you won't care. We get that, right? If I'm not a humble person, if I have no humility at all, I'm not going to care. So how am I going to have a mind of sacrifice if I don't have a mind of humility? They go together. In fact, a mind of sacrifice stems from a mind of humility. Philippians 2 and 8. Let's look, about, look at Jesus again. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The word humble literally means to make low or bring to the ground. Okay? Do you know what the English word that's the closest in translation of this Greek word? There's one word. It's the closest English word to what this means. And it's this right here. Humiliation. Humiliation. That's what the Lord did. He submitted to humiliation. That's humility. That's humility. He accepted humiliation willingly. Have you ever been humiliated? Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever been put down for the cause of Christ? In James 4 and 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He'll lift you up. Here's another passage, Luke 14 and 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We must accept that. You know, there's a passage in Acts chapter five that's amazing because usually what we do is we kind of feel sorry for ourselves when something negative comes to us or some persecution comes our way or some negative thing. And I understand that it's human tendency, I get that. But notice this, in Acts chapter five, 
So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Have you ever done that? Thank God that you were able, you had the opportunity to suffer for the name or the cause of Christ. That's a mind of sacrifice that comes from a mind of humility. Remember this, though. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, to have the mind of Christ is to have the mind of sacrifice. It comes from a mind of humility which leads to this, and I'm finished. It leads to this. It leads to a mind of obedience. If people have a hard time obeying, it's because they have a hard time with humility. It's because they have a hard time with sacrifice. And therefore, if I have no humility and I'm not willing to sacrifice, I guarantee you, I'm not obeying. But if I have a mind of sacrifice stemming from a mind of humility, it will lead to a mind of obedience. Philippians 2 and 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Lord had a mind of obedience. He glorified the Father through that obedience. But you and I have to obey too. And I know that that's not really popular, the word obey, but it really it's, it's scriptural and it's something we have to do. Jesus obeyed the Father's will. And everything he did, everything, was for the sins of the people, the sins of the world, obedience to his Father, and his bride being the church. Everything. Have you ever stopped to consider that absolutely nothing in 33 years that Jesus walked on this earth, nothing he did was for him? I don't read anything in there that he did for his own benefit. Everything he did, he did for another. And because of that, I have hope of everlasting life. Isn't that great? Because Jesus was willing to sacrifice, be humbled, and to obey. So what about us? What about us? Is there anything required of us? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things in which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him. You have to obey the Lord, folks, to go, go to heaven one day. To have that mind of Christ is to have a mind of sacrifice, humility, and obedience. So I just simply ask you, do you today have the mind of Christ or do you have some work to do do I have some work to do good thoughts we need to consider it because Paul said we have to have this mind what was in Christ has to also be in us well the first thing you have to do in order to be saved you have to obey the gospel you have to obey the gospel the Bible says eternal salvation is to all those who obey him it begins with obedience to the gospel here briefly is the plan of salvation on the screen this is what you have to do to be saved Paul said in Romans 10, 17, I got to hear the word of God. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What else? I have to have faith or I have to believe. 
Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I have to believe. Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Also further, we are told in Luke 13 and 3, that unless we repent too, we will all likewise perish. We have to change our mind. It leads to a change of life. That's repentance. We must confess the name of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 and verse 9 says, Confess the Lord Jesus. Confess Jesus with your mouth. And that confession is, according to Acts 8 and 37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon taking these steps, we are now a fit candidate to go to the point of salvation. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can be one today if you'll follow those steps of obedience. Be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Rise to walk in newness of life. He'll add you to his church. And you begin your life as a child of God. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.